Welcome to the Hobcast Book Show, a weekly podcast from Hobeck Books, an independent publisher of thrillers, crime, mystery and suspense novels. Each week, we'll take you behind the scenes of what we do, the challenges and the triumphs, the bumps and troughs of running a creative business in this challenging world. We'll hear from the people who make this possible, the authors, the cover designers and editors, and we'll have expert insights from our guest star interviews. Nothing is off the agenda on the Hopcast Book Show from Hobeck Books, as we combine trad values and an indie spirit. And welcome to the Hobcast Book Show, episode number 150. 150. I can't Amazing. wait to get to 180. I know, you're going to love that day. We're going to get you? Russ Bray to do it. He was the, uh, the gravel voiced. Um, but you, dance can, you can do it quite well, though. 180. That's pretty good. Yeah, it's not bad. He's retiring at the end of uh, the World Championships oh, no. next, next, next month. That's quite sad. It is. Yeah. Anyway, we digress, <laughs> which is what we do a lot on this show. Anyway, we are so delighted to have you or your company on the Hobcast Book Show. 150 episodes is amazing. And as you know, we do a couple of things on here. We talk about our working lives. We run Hobeck Books, UK independent publishers of the following four genres. Mysteries. Crime. Thrillers. And suspense. And we ought to say who we are. And uh, we ought to mention who we are. <laughs> Rebecca, uh, you're Rebecca Collins. And you're Adrian Hobart. And we run Hobeck Books. Okay, uh, slightly out of order, but anyway, it's 150. It's good to be different on yeah, the 150. We'll have a little bit of a mix-up. Now, uh, we did promise, <laughs> we did anticipate uh, the wonderful Cathy Giorgio joining us this week. Sadly, Cathy has had really severe case of bronchitis for... Essentially two months now. Yeah, she's been off work and everything, she told me. Yeah, she's in, uh, in a bad way. And um, one of the things that she's being treated with makes her lose her voice because her vocal cords tighten up and she's lost her voice. Mm. So she wasn't able to join us again this week. So we are planning to speak to her, but it'll be in 2024 On now. On Valentine's Day. <laughs> yeah. So uh, that to look forward to still. And into the breach stepped the wonderful AJ Aberford or Tony Gartland as he is in, in normal life. Tony uh, joins us to talk about his most recent release for us at Hobeck, which is The Last Bird of Paradise, and it's book five in the George Zamit series set in Malta and across the Mediterranean. This time it travels to Syria. So uh, delighted that Tony could join us. And uh, we talk about what it's like to get to book five in a series. Yes, but it was quite strange talking about all these sunny climates when we're sat surrounded by snow. You were so thrilled that there was snow this morning. In fact, you couldn't sleep with anticipation of snow in the morning. I was so excited and you kept trying to delay me from getting up, which is very naughty of you. But I did get up eventually <laughs> and I went out and I made a snowman. I just didn't want you to go out to the snow in the dark. <laughs> I really did. Yeah. I wanted to. Anyway. No, well, anyway, we, we have a snowman. We have a snowman and it has snowed. And I'm sure many of you listening to us in the UK have had your own snow stories to reveal. It's not been easy for a lot of people, actually. Anyway, thanks for uh, for joining us. And we get into the news section now. Um, now, a couple of eyes, stories have caught our eye. And the, the one in publishing which is dominating everything and has potentially changed the course of British history. <laughs> <laughs> That's 
quite a claim. Well, I wouldn't go that far, but I mean, it depends which side of the debate you are. But um, it is the story about Omid Scobie and his book Endgame. Now, he's an American writer. He's close to Harry and Meghan, the uh, Duke and Duchess of Sussex. Wrote a book about them before and about their uh, exit from the royal family. And now Endgame goes even further in dishing the dirt on the internecine strife within the British mm. royal family. Now, the real controversy has been about the Dutch edition of Endgame, which came out briefly into bookshops <laughs> Very briefly, before yeah. being retracted again, because that edition of the book contained the names of the alleged pair of members of the royal family who speculated, this is what, um, and, and, and this is allegedly, uh, when the Duchess of Sussex was interviewed by Oprah, she said that uh, two members of the royal family had speculated about the colour of the skin of their firstborn child, Archie. Yes. And there's been a silence about who that was within the royal family. And when it was emerged in the Dutch edition, it has caused a massive furore. We're not going to repeat those names uh, because it's actually legal action pending. But the BBC, amongst other outlets... Uh, and I actually spoke to the producer who had to call the higher-ups at the BBC in the middle of the week to ask, what are we going to do about this? The papers are all full of it, and Piers Morgan has announced it. So who are we going to, you know, uh, officially announce it? And the, the, the position of the BBC at 6 o'clock one morning this week was, no, we're not going to do it. Mm. And by 7 o'clock it had changed, and they did name the two members of the royal family, senior royals and uh, of the royal family, who... Uh, had allegedly speculated. I actually don't know who they are. I heard it on the radio, on Radio 4, and I was only half listening because I was driving. <laughs> well, look, we're, we're not going to share but, that. If you want to know, it's the, all out there. But the principle is what we're talking about, really, isn't it? Right. It's, it's... So at some point, every other... The manuscripts, he'd obviously... You know, he claims he didn't put them in, but that's not the case because at some point there was a manuscript going doing the rounds mm. which had the names in, and then they were... The publishers decided to take them out, but somehow they, they, sent the translation. The, they sent the wrong edition or the wrong version of the man yeah. manuscript to the Dutch translator who is, swears blind that the names were in that manuscript that she was sent and that she has not inserted them herself. I can see how that can happen, actually, because, you know, version control is something you have to be very careful with as a mm. publisher. And it could have been just one version of a word file before the final version yep. or something like that. And some editorial assistant that sent it off without, you know, maybe not knowing that there was another version or maybe just not doing it too quickly or something like that. And yet these things do happen when you work in publishing. It's very unfortunate, but I can see how that happened. Yeah. Yeah, I, I can see how it happened. Um, but this is... Uh, causing something of a, a constitutional crisis in the UK at the moment because uh, certain MPs are, uh, are talking about um, uh, trying to pass legislation to have the Sussexes removed as royals. Blimey, <laughs> as a result that's of quite this. extreme. And indeed, you know, for those people who, they are not, haven't done who are Republicans, this is further evidence that uh, the British people shouldn't be funding the royal family because two senior members of the royal family are racists, allegedly. So... This is really kicked off. Oh, I know, yeah. <laughs> um, and, and all because 
the wrong version was sent to you. The so <laughs> if you were that person working for that publisher, probably quite low down in the hierarchy. Mm. Oh yeah, how would you be feeling right now? Well, I'm sure they're doing a something of an investigation. I, I tell you what, it sold a few books though. So well, um, you see, that's another and issue, and dominated isn't the newspapers. It? I mean, I couldn't believe it when. Um, you know, some of the newspapers in this in this country have been leading with revelations in the book. Uh, on one hand, uh, that'd be their lead story, and the next bit would be three or four of their commentators saying what a load of tripe it all is and how um, it is, uh, you know, disgusting. So, you know, they're having their cake and eating it on both in both directions. I- interesting, right? Okay, well, that's that's a big, big story at the moment in the UK for sure. I'm sure worldwide. We love stories like that, though, don't we? Well, British yeah. culture. <laughs> yes, I suppose so. I suppose so. Um, now, I, I noticed there was a. I, I picked up. I don't know where I saw it, but um, there was some report that said that Google Books, which is one of the outlets that, if you're published wide, mm. your eBooks would be sold through Google Books. It's quite a quite an important platform. Yes. I mean, nothing like as significant as Amazon, but still fairly still important. Still fairly big, yeah. And um, they have an option now where you, as a as a as a punter, mm-hmm. you buy your ebook and you want an audio version of it. I often do, so I can listen to it in the car. Well, they've created something called auto narration. Now, I'm quite interested by this because that would be mm-hmm. great, wouldn't it? Because does that mean you know a bit like that? What's it called? Whisper sync thing? Where yeah. You know, I could read some of well, it in bed and then I could get in the car. Yeah, similar. But WhisperSync is, well, until recently, and of course Audible have announced that uh, they are going to have their own version of, of sort of auto-narration in, in a way, uh, but where publishers would pay for the books to be auto-narrated. This is slightly different. This is where you get your book. Yes. And you want some, you know, some AI to read to you, but you can choose now between 50 voices to, oh. to play the different characters. So is it more like sat-navs when you used to be able to pick Australian Ken? Or... It's even more sophisticated than that because, yes, you can have a core narrator doing the body of the work, but you can now highlight bits of the text where another character is speaking and another AI voice would play that character. But how would you do that? Because how does it know that, especially if it's a piece of dialogue with no attribution? Well, you, you, ha- you do the highlighting. Oh, that'll you take do you forever. The... I know. <laughs> well, I thought it would be interesting, to, um, and and it, it's important to to note, and I think this is an impressive thing. I don't necessarily want it to happen because I'm a narrator myself, and this is my business. But um, they now do it in English, Spanish, French, German, Hindi, or Brazilian Portuguese. So this is quite something. But I, I just played you an example of one of their auto narrated voices. I'll, you why did. Don't I, why don't I just I'll put the microphone close to my phone and we can, we can listen to a couple, shall we? Okay. This... In the middle of the floor, from which a ladder led down into the small dark hole. Okay. So that's a, a tiny <laughs> snippet. That was Anya. Let's let's listen to Marcus. Dorothy lived in the midst of the great Kansas prairies with Uncle Henry and Aunt Anne. Their house was small. For the lumber to build it had to be carried by wagon many miles. There were four walls, a floor and a roof, which made one room. And this room contained a rusty-looking cook stove, a cupboard for the dishes, a table, three or four chairs, and the beds. Well, there's the giveaway for me. And you hear this all the time on YouTube is the pauses are completely out. And there's also this sort of dead quality when they fall off the end of the sentence, like that. 
it's, I mean, it's not far, it's not far off, but it, the pacing is wrong. Like you say, the, the, the variation in the and tone when they get and... to acronyms. So, for instance, the other day I was watching, a, as I always do, uh, anything about naval, Royal Naval developments and things like that. And so you get um, it was a British sounding voice, but it was clearly AI because they didn't realise that um, that the new frigates that the, the Royal Navy building Type Twenty Sixes are built by BAE Systems. And, of course, it interpreted as by systems. By systems will build, you know, that kind of... And, and it'll be the same with the acronym MOD, which stands for Ministry of Defence. It'll be mad thinkers, you know, planners, have you know, that kind of thing. And there'll be RAF for RAF. But that's now, isn't it? I mean, mm. that's the thing about AI technology. There's so many things wrong with it at the moment, but it won't be long. Well, I would go be driven potty listening to voices like like that. Um, it just would... I mean, it, it's a means to an end if you've really got nothing else, but it's a performance. I've just finished... I, You know, I punched the air at uh, about an hour and a half before we recorded this, because I came out of my studio having finished the third of the middle grade books that i've been doing for zuntold the gangster uh, um gangster school school series (laughs) by kate wiseman um so i've just finished the principal recording on the third of those of the trilogy and um you know that's been my life for the last three four weeks really doing those books even five weeks i think um and the amount of effort i've gone to to create i have probably created in audio, 40 different characters, 40 different character voices, ranging from, you know, the two uh, kids who are the protagonists who are fairly straightforward voices, Charlie's from Manchester, and uh, Millie, she's kind of posh and southern and like that, you know, very earnest. Um, that's fine. And then you've got Ms. Martinet, absolutely, dis- you know, despicable. That kind of thing. And then you'd be Victor Borger, who talks about, you know, uh, Edgar Borger, I should say. He's the, he, he's the, uh, he teaches lying to the students of the school. And uh, then the bad guy from Crumley's was like, you know, he was the headmaster. <laughs> and so you're doing all these voices. I've done robot voices. Yeah, I've done all sorts of I'm things. I'm exhausted listening to you. You just have a click or a few clicks and you can do it on using AI. And then you could put your feet up and have a satsuma. Yeah, well, it's interesting, this whole thing, because I discovered a a service the other day, and I haven't done it yet, because I need to look into the contract. It's called Voices.ai, and they will clone my voice. It'll take them between four and eight hours. You give them a whole few samples of me doing whatever I do, and they claim that they can have an AI version of me ready the next day. Brilliant. So next time you go away for a night, we could have, we could just do a dummy thing next to me, and like play the recordings of you speaking. And I'd actually say nice things to you for once rather yeah. than the usual I could, I could program it so it just says you're lovely over and over again. I really like you. <laughs> you know what I would like for breakfast in the morning? Well, I hope he's not going to say that because I'll say, well, you know where the kitchen is. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway... Um, it moves on. AI just accelerates and accelerates. It's uh, it's quite extraordinary. Well, just just as a, qu- a quick note, so the the Future Book Conference, which has been going on, they are saying that for small presses such as ourselves, mm. AI is one way we can get more audio books out. 
Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> I can look, see look. you thinking it's not happening. No, no. I mean, here's here's what I think. Fine. Yes, you can turn it into audio, but it's not an audio book because it's it's not narrated. It's just it is a um, it's a presentation of the book using technology that makes it possible to listen to the words on the page, but it's not what the intention of the author is. It's not that none of what we've just listened to was conveying the true um, ambition, you know, of the author in the way it's, it was described. That was so flattened and, and difficult to listen well, to. Well, actually, they, maybe they should make that distinction when they're marketing and say it's, a, it's an audio version of the book. Well, I mean, you well, know, you remember, you remember back in the old days when when it, they were physical cassettes or CDs, and there was the abridged version, yes. which was the cheaper version, and the unabridged, which would cost an absolute fortune, had ten discs, yeah, or whatever, hunting cassettes, and that was a different thing. And you know, once you'd played it once, you never knew where you were in the in the story because you know you hadn't rewound the cassette or whatever it was. It was always a disaster. So that was a distinction. And people would buy, if they wanted the unabridged version, that's what they would go for, the premium brand. Now it's going to be as narrated by a human. Yeah, no, I think you're right. I think it, there will be a period of time where the market is divided into those two. Yeah, okay. So but you're going to retire in 10 years anyway, so by then. Oh, hardly. <laughs> it's a calling. I can't. I can't. I can't retire. Okay, let's get to our interview, and uh, we are delighted to be joined by Tony Gartland from Malta, where, of course, he has set his George Zamit series, where he started off as, I think, just a, a, an inspector, and he's he's gone up, up through the ranks over the five books and been involved in his extraordinary adventures across the Mediterranean. They are very, very popular now in Malta and growing fan base all around the world of these just great books, and uh, it was a delight to catch up with Tony, writing as A.J. Aberford. And, uh, of course, last week we published The Last Bird of Paradise. So let's talk to Tony. Coming off the subs bench, then, is the wonderful Tony Gartland. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Great to be back. I'm an old hand. I've done it once before. so You've done I'm it. <laughs> you know what I'm to expect. Red. Been there, done that, up. worn a T-shirt, answered the random question. <laughs> exactly. I'm all revved up and good to go. Excellent, excellent. Well, look, uh, I think we should start by saying congratulations on the release of book five in the George Zamit series. What Thank a fantastic you. achievement! It's great. No, it's um, it's been a it's been a sort of a bit, a bit different, really. The first three, as you well know, came out quite close together as they were already written when I met you. Yeah. Um, and then the last one, number four, came out in March. So it just feels as though it's taken a long time to get five out, but. Um, in the scheme of things, I suppose that's not really the case. But, no, uh, it isn't. But they're big books. I mean, you know, that's a lot of work involved in, in the intricacy of the plotting and the setting that you, you you go to. Well, especially when I'm under strictures from your good selves to keep it under 120,000 words. <laughs> so <laughs> the editing process is quite grueling. We're me, aren't we? <laughs> you are. You're from dreadful people. Yes. <laughs> well, uh, Let's let's just talk about the arc of the story. And we ought to mention that alongside the release of The Last Bird of Paradise, we've also created a box set of ebooks for the first three. So the arc of George Zamit, or Zamit, yeah, I should say, yeah. uh, is extraordinary, really. Um, when we first encountered him, when we first spoke, we were talking about a character who was 
in the Polizia of Malta and wanted an easy life. But since then, nothing has been easy for George. It's been <laughs> one extraordinary Mediterranean roller coaster for him, hasn't it? It has, yeah. I mean, I think it's sort of in part. You, you you know my history. I started writing during lockdown. Fundamentally, I just sat down one day and thought I'd write a story and looked at some headlines and thought this might be a good idea. So it all happened in a bit of a vacuum. And then as number two came out to number three, there were factors within them that started to create a sort of a series rather than a series of standalones. I mean, I've got a good friend who um, has all the works of uh, Donna Leon, uh, Commissario Brunetti, and there's 25, 30 books, and they're all there on a shelf. And, of course, the you know, the good commissario hasn't aged. Nothing's happened around him and his house and his mother. And, you know, it's as if time stood still. But whereas in the Zamid household, Zamid household, the daughter, uh, Gina, has found a boyfriend. She's got engaged and then she got married. Now she's had a baby. And I'm just literally finishing six where she's pregnant again. So though the arc has progressed, you know, and time has moved on and George has been promoted and his son has come to play, you know, come into the game. And basically a series has developed, which wasn't the original intention. But um, suddenly I just found the fact that the stories and that narrative arc, as you say, over time was um, was progressing. And I prefer it that way. You know, I think it sort of adds something to the story, gives something a bit of involvement and a bit of ownership to the readers to see things move in that way rather than have a very flat series of tales where none of the sort of circumstances around the characters actually change in any way. And that's like life. I mean, life it, is a series, really. <laughs> well, yes, quite, yes. It, 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 <laughs> well, it is like that, yeah. And then, you know, you do feel in that sense that you get to know the characters very much because obviously you've, you know, you've, designed and um, being part of the change that you've inflicted upon them, actually. Um, and obviously, George has been promoted and has risen through the ranks and has become slightly less bumbling, slightly, although still as endearing and still as, uh, you know, uh, um, ravenous and greedy as he always has been. But he has kind of got, him, got his act together slightly now. Um, and that, that, again, is good. You couldn't just have him being the Georgia book number one all the way through, because it's a bit like a, a bit like a bunter story. People get fed up with them, you know. Um, so he has progressed, and it makes life more interesting, certainly for me, you know, as, as the author of books. Yeah, uh, but, I mean, I'm, I'm intrigued to know that now that they've been out of the world and people have, you know, you've got your army, growing army of fans, um, how, how much do you think they're drawn by the domestic balancing act that George strikes with an overbearing and um how do we put it high strung wife uh, <laughs> so negative word well, how about um no, a woman thought, of substance wife. I thought that was pretty I thought that was pretty good actually it was very discreet and I could yeah. yes I mean you know there could be other ways of describing Mariana because she, she is um yeah I mean <laughs> No, she's, she's, I mean, she, she's, she's fantastic. And you know, it's people love George and that's what they always say. You know, we, you know, I, I love George and I love Mariana and, you know, a whole raft of characters flow through the books, but um, George and uh, the domestic situation is one that kind of drags people in. And I have actually just finished book six and it's just been through its copy edit. 
And there's sort of more of that in, in book six, which is set 100% in Malta. And the family themselves get embroiled in um, a, a, an adventure in, in Malta. Um, so, yeah, it's it's a pleasure to write. And Marianne comes comes to life for me. I'm not going to say she's like my mother-in-law. But, uh, <laughs> uh, I, I, I had. I mean, she's long not long gone, unfortunately. She, she died recently. But she was um, a spiky Italian lady, um, about four foot nothing and full of malice. Um, <laughs> and we loved, we loved her deeply. She was brought up in a convent in Vatican City. The father was one of the, um, he was a member of the fascists during the Second World War. And she always sort of retained that affection for the Italian fascist movement. She said, you know, they all look lovely in their, in their black clothes. Red is a smart. So... Uh, there's a little bit. There's a little bit of that when uh, when I when I talk about Mariana. So it's a it's a tribute. Okay. Well, no, I, I, I think she is one of the the the, the shining lights, the beacons of the, of the whole series in, in the way that um, she has to put up with the uh, ludicrous situations that that George seems to get himself involved in. I mean, very serious as well. I mean, but they are kind of ludicrous. I mean, you know, he's the last yeah. man you would send into the things that he gets involved in. Poor chap. No wonder well, he eats lots of pastries and stuff. Well, that's right. I mean, it's uh, and obviously he he comes home after all these terrible adventures where he suffered great privations and he's he's treated uh, treated abominably and not believed and um, just has to fit back into his chair in the corner of the kitchen and take 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 the abuse that's thrown at him. And that, that, that's his lot in life. But fundamentally, that's where he's happiest. And that's that's what that's what he enjoys. He's he's a, he's an everyman. He's a homebird. You know, he's uh, that's where. He belongs when he goes out into the world. That's where he finds, you know, the alien alien territory. And um, these experiences are not what he goes to seek. Um, they're always thrust upon him. I have a question because it just came to me: is that when you're walking out and about in Malta, do you ever think that is George, that person there, that is George? <laughs> well, I mean, I don't actually have that strong a visual image of him. Some of the characters I actually do. And Janet, my wife, um, thinks basically it's our estate agent, but um, I'm adamant that it's not our estate agent. Um, so I, I, I don't. It's, it's a peculiar thing, and I have thought about it a bit. You know, what does he look like? I know how I've described him. That he's a certain height and a, a certain build, and um, I never quite could work out what his hair looks like and uh, what is it, has it receded or you know is it wavy or you know I, I just don't have that. Whereas with others, I, I very definitely do have a very strong visual kind of presence and I know people you know the some of the uh, the author tools you can get have storyboards where you can you know basically clip post-it electronic post-it notes with pictures and photographs so you keep this visual image in front of you but uh, I mean I don't use that I, I sort of you know I do have certain visual images but uh, with George no no I haven't I haven't spotted him in a crowd in Malta it just got me thinking. Maybe there's an AI tool, or there could be an AI tool where you speak, you explain what the character looks like, and it comes up with a three D image. Yeah, possibly. Possibly. I'm sure there is. I mean, you could probably ask Adobe to to come up with something like that. But uh, yeah, it's interesting that that that, that your main character you, you can't visualize as strongly as say, I suppose Gerald's uh, Camondieri is is one that in my mind is is very clear. And I would yeah. say your uh, description of Natasha Benici, everyone can envisage her as well. Um, and that's that's just the stuff of fantasy, though. That's uh, that's, that's just a mere, oh, no. the mere fantasy at work. 
Well, I, I, yeah, so I've got this sort of Sophia Loren in her pomp yeah. kind of feel to her, or maybe yeah. Gina Lolly Brigida or someone like that. Uh, You're in the right ballpark. You're in the ballpark. Or more modern Penelope Cruz would be a very good. Oh, uh, so I, I leave now. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, uh, yes, perhaps you should. <laughs> anyway, no, no, I mean, it, it, you know, those are very strong characters that come across, and, and part of their impact is the way they look. It, it is that they have a, they, they take control of a room, of a situation with the way that they look and they move. Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, certainly the stronger characters, I mean, Abdullah, I can visualize perfectly. I could, um, you know, I could write the way down to sort of the gaps between his teeth and um, the way he speaks and his gold incisor and everything. You know, just uh, a, perf- a perfect image of him. Um, uh, uh, yeah, strong, strong characters, and they're the ones you can have the most, the most fun with. I mean, the most difficult one is things like George's son Denzel, who is coming up and he's a bit of a prude. He's a bit straight, um, and he's a bit of a foil to George's kind of chaotic and haphazard approach. Um, and as the sort of his involvement in the stories progress, you know he becomes stronger and stronger, but in a very responsible, clean-cut sort of way. Uh, whereas George, sort of obviously, is his usual shambolic self. So yeah, there's there's interesting things, and even Zavi, who is the um, the man-child computer hacker with his long hair and everything else, has sufficient sort of big personality to to take over a chapter, a chunk of the story. And I think if you give the characters a chapter each, which is how I've structured the series, um, they've got a big playground. You know, they've got a, um, they've got to be big enough to carry a chapter at a time. You know, there's no point just having someone who walks into a shop and says a few words, you know, you, they, they, they've got to carry the story along. They're responsible for that as characters. It's a short chapter. Yeah, well, true. Well, <laughs> Unless, of course, it's Abdullah's shop, and then it's you know a whole different thing, and he'll give you a big shaggy dog story about what he... Well, you know. exactly, exactly. And if you've ever been to sort of Marrakesh or well, anywhere in the Arab world, really, or the the, um, the Grand Bazaar in Turkey, you know, you haven't... You know, it's salesmanship. You know, there's sort of the... That's one thing they know in the Arab world, how to sell something to somebody. Mm. No... You come and work for Hoback, then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so no, 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 no coincidence that sort of um, Istanbul, you know, was the, the trading capital of the world. At one point. Mm, that's true. Absolutely. Now, I mean, we we pick up this story. Um, now he's let's let's just uh, detail some of the ventures he's been on or or the places he's been. I mean, we started in Libya, uh, coming under fire and um, and then having to escape in a boat carrying migrants um, and you know nearly dying on that. Then uh, subsequent books, we've been to Sicily and we've been on the uh, slopes of Mount Etna. In fact, we've been into Mount Etna, mm. deep into yeah. the, into the volcano uh, and all the things that can go wrong with that. I mean, you know, we've we have experienced some pretty precarious journeys with our good our good uh, George. But this time he's off to Syria. And on the face of it, this is a this seems quite a sort of mundane task he's being asked to go and be an auditor effectively and checking what's been happening to aid going into syrian refugee camps um and he approaches it with denzel alongside him as a rather prosaic why am i why am i the one having to do this this is crazy 
but as ever with George, it soon <laughs> expands into a much bigger story. Um, you know, and it seems very pressing as well because you know we are we're dealing with a lot of this sort of stuff at the moment. There's been cases already about you know the way that a lot of funds have been misappropriated. So um, it, it just yeah. feel your timing is immaculate as ever. <laughs> well. You know, it, it's you grab the stories from the headlines, and I looked at you know there's international fraud journals online, and you can go into the detailed scams that uh, have been made by the charities which take money from the the UN Refugee Council. You know, and millions, billions have been distributed, and you've got to expect an element of leakage. You know, especially when you go into the you know the the, 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 the sort of that, that that part of the world. Um, and there are stories and the disappearing tents and the disappearing cabins. I mean, these tents are a thousand euros each, you know, a basic UN tent, a portable piece of living accommodation is 5,000 euros. And there are thousands of these in these encampments. You know, the refugee camps hold 70, 80, 90,000 people, you know, divide that by five. Then you get the number of tents, multiply it by, you know, a thousand or 5,000 units and you can see the money involved. And then, of course, there's all the money to service the camps. And once you start looking at it, these are cities. And, you know, the UN have put in controlling entities, which Olaf is one of the European ones, who run on seconded, a seconded basis through sort of EU staff. Um, and poor old George gets seconded in there and gets given a murky corner of Syria to, uh, to try and sort, sort some problems out. But it's a great part, I say it's a great part of the world. It's a very interesting part of the world, you know, because it's northern Syria is, you know, Kurdistan, that sort of area of Iran, Iraq, and Turkey, which at the end of the First World War would have been an independent state. I mean, Woodrow Wilson was going to set it up as an independent state. But 1920s, the Turks decided to, re- to have a war of independence, and that knocked the plan off, and it was just divided up between Turkey and Britain and France. So... You know, it became a hotspot, and it, and it still remains a hotspot. And the Kurds, one of the you know, great sort of mistreated ethnic groups, um, and researching the book was great because I mean I've always been interested in this sort of thing and the tensions between Iran and Iraq and the sort of the ethnic versus the religious separations all make for a good conflict. And what I try to do is I try to explain some of that, not in a very you know um, high-handed academic manner, but just try to weave those themes into the stories themselves and people and people seem to enjoy them i don't get feedback in the reviews oh my god that was boring you know why doesn't he just get on with the action you know let's have more of george and a gun in his hand or something people do seem to actually enjoy the the scale of story and the way in which locations get treated so so yeah it's um yeah, it was, it, was, it was a good thing to do, and I, I enjoyed doing it. And actually, what I find is most of the time I probably write for myself. You know, it's, uh, I know I read all the advice that you should write to market, write to market, and I can't do that. You know, I, I try, and I set off in the direction, then suddenly something catches my attention, and I'll wander off into some other area or some bits of geopolitics or something like that. But, um, yes, uh, the, um, the, Syri- the Syrian story... On the face of it, would seem probably not as eye-catching as Libya or, or Turkey or, or or somewhere like that, or an erupting Mount Etna. But I hope people find enough in there to to interest them. 
I'm sure. And I think one of the great achievements that you've done with these stories is that you've taken what appear to be these geo well, you are following the headlines in terms of these geopolitical tectonic plates within the Mediterranean area, the different uh, powers and the way that they are interacting with each other and all squabbling over the same bits of dirt, really. Uh, mm-hmm. But you make you, you take that, but then you turn it into a very human story, partly through George's travels, but also the characters that he meets. And, you know, he's beginning to build quite a collection of of people that, <laughs> that owe him. Um yeah. You know, that that sometimes he wants to try and take the easy option, but somehow his humanity always forces him to take the difficult option and go above and beyond to help people. Yes, I think that's I think that's right. It's um yeah, he's there's no malice in him. There's no self-interest in him, really. Um he basically is a victim of circumstances, so he behaves in a very benign fashion. Um and you know, it's people have said that there's there's violence in the books, there's guns and explosions and things of that sort. Um, but I don't try and glorify it. And certainly George doesn't enjoy it. Usually he's you know he's got his eyes shut when he's pulling the trigger and just hopes hopes he'll hit something, you know. But um, uh, yeah, and I think with we're moving on to to six. It's a question of what you do with the series, whether you kind of expand it or you leave it hanging and or you sort of try and close it down a bit um so i'm not going to give any 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 um clues away as to what happens in six but you know people are getting older things are changing um and six is six has been an interesting book and i never really knew what was going to happen in it until i got halfway through um but yes he says goodbye to people and there's some comings and goings and people who he thought had gone, come back, uh, as is the way with George. Um, so we find out. But um, yes, he does have a, he has an alumni, basically, from his uh, um, experiences. And people who like George's family are in for a bit of a treat because George's family, I say, feature quite highly. And instead of their holiday to Spain, which is hard, hard, you know, a very contested annual event, George takes him somewhere else, so I'll leave oh. that one hanging too. Oh wow! Oh, I want to. I want to know where we. Well, I mean, yeah, um, <laughs> now in parallel, we're also talking about Natasha Benici, who has been, I suppose, the um, on and off one of the great sort of. I mean, it's hard to describe her as being a protagonist or an antagonist at times. I mean, she kind of changes. She's one of those terrible people who um, does unspeakable things uh, and is a master criminal to an extent, but you can't help liking her and, you know, rooting for her at the same time. And I think this story is as much about her. um, Well, without giving too much away, Let's put it this way: she's powerful at the start, and she's less powerful at the end. <laughs> I mean, that's 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 right. And um, again, sort of that situation is one of the starting points for book six. So, what happens to her? Um, and I think it's all part of the sort of you know the, the the themes. And certainly, as the story has gone on, she's now met her met her cousin Greca, and there's a sort of bit of an axis. So they don't know whether they're friends or whether they're not friends. Between them, they're two powerful women. Um, and it's good to have sort of these uh, antagonists, you know, who 
have a friendship between themselves, you know, by virtue of family, uh, then they fall out over in terrible circumstances. But it's nice to write about um, women in that sense, um, bad women. I mean, it's, you know, it's, I don't know what the proportion of bad women to bad men are in books, but I think it's probably more in favour of bad men than it isn't bad women. So that's, that, 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 that's, that's been a point of interest. And again, I've enjoyed that. Um, and yes, the sort of the George adventure runs, and in the background, there's always been the sort of the second theme, which is what happens to the family, which is the, the ongoing medieval, medieval sort of financial guild that has morphed into a modern day um, organized criminal sort of enterprise, be it blue blooded, uh, well mannered, uh, very well dressed, and nicely accommodated in chateaus around Europe. So that plays really in as much as um, the, the George story does. Um, Camilleri and Marco Bonici are the link into that. So George interfaces with them. Um, to a large extent, that's where George's moral ambivalence is cited. He's connected with them. Um, and in book, book five, he has a choice to make. And he makes it, he makes that choice. And that's part of the chaos which leads to Natasha um, being pursued by forces of law and order from, from, from Italy, um, a revenge from someone who she has wronged previously, comes back to uh, confront her. George gets some steel in his spine and, go, and has, has things to say about her. So she finds herself in a difficult position. And her father, of course, with whom she's had a very difficult relationship over the years, um, again, uh, rejects her. So psychologically, she takes some big hits and that has an effect on her. And then a newfound friendship impacts her as well. So the girl's had a hard time. Mm. Um, and how is she going to respond? And can she bounce back? We don't know. But that's... I'm going to say yeah. Well, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I, I think she's pretty resourceful um, and vengeful. And, she looks um, for downtime, though, when it's a you know well, a news day. What does she do? <laughs> well, I think there's quite a lot of description of what she gets up to on her downtime as well in the books. If you take the whole arc, so uh, yeah. But I mean, she's uh, she is extraordinary character, and and you know it is a world rich with with great characters, and um, and and just huge adventures. So in terms of of, of doing, dealing with that, I mean, do you have a, a sort of mental handbrake when you go? Maybe I've pushed it too far in some directions, or do you think, do you know what? This is what this is about. This is taking it and thinking on a really big canvas and and, and going for going for it. Um, yeah, I mean, in sort of a, it, it, there's a couple of aspects to the questions. One is that the um, some of the extremes are moderated by my very good and very conservative editor, um, Lynn Curtis, who say, Tony, we can't have that. And I think she's, she's quite traditional, and she was the one who suggested that, you know, doing ill to cats might not be a great idea. Yeah. Um, much before Rebecca threw her hands up in horror reading about at that point. <laughs> so um, she, she goes from there, and she's very conscious about things like cultural appropriation, that, you know, I am a white, middle-class, elderly man, and certain subjects are best avoided because maybe I don't have the ability to treat them in the way they should be treated. Um, you know, sort of, uh, I, I don't want to get into the discussion around these things because I've, I fear a misstep, um, which I find strange because obviously I'm a, you know, 
a left-leaning liberal person with, with all sorts of views, but um, I find myself kind of now excluding myself from certain areas in which, you know, a plot might take me or relationships might take me. Um, mm. I have sort of tried it and she said, are you sure you want to go there? And there's nothing wrong with what you've done. But, you know, there are people who will take offence at this. Um, there was one of the ones where the girl um, from book um, four, um, who was in a lesbian relationship, um, it was there was a potential for her to become bisexual um, and actually have a relationship with Denzel, believe it or not. And that was written in one of the earlier drafts. And she was quite adamant that this was something which didn't work. And this was something which, because you know, I hadn't made reference to her bisexuality in the original book when she was living with a the woman. Therefore, this complication had to be ironed out. And I just threw my hands up in the air. I just took the whole thing out. And Denzel doesn't get a girlfriend. But, um, you know, it's, 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 it's of our time. So these are, these are you know, the challenges, I think, as, a, as writers, you know, and people you don't want to stray into this area of the public debate. I certainly don't. You know, it's, uh, I'm, I haven't got the stomach or the spine for it. So I tiptoe around that particular, that, that area. Uh, so that's what's one area. I think in terms of the scale of the adventure, and, you know, will George end up on a spaceship going to Mars or something? Well, obviously not. You know, it's got to be within the realms of the possible. It's not uh, Dallas, is it? <laughs> no, no, quite. Even though it might be fantastic and fabulous. You know, he has managed to sink um, a Greek naval uh, you know, Greek naval corvette. But um, because he doesn't know the difference between backwards and forwards on the uh, <laughs> the throttle. But um, <laughs> you know, things things like that happen. But I think it has to be sort of kept within, you know, even, even what's possible for George, which is quite a lot. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, yeah, uh, you, you've got to be realistic and keep it within certain bounds. And mm. not kill cats. And certainly not, not kill cats, ever. No. No, I mean, did that, that, it's, I'm, I'm glad you talked about that, that challenge because, the, I mean, that sort of self-censorship, which is now part of an everyday writer's life. Um, and uh, in a in in a way, it feels. I mean, personally, I feel it's a bit sad that we have to think like that as publishers too. That you know, we, you know, do we really want to take X risk of attracting that that opprobrium that that is lying out there in social media, for instance? Yeah, I mean, it's a real question. I mean, I I sort of have a house in Bradford. I've lived in Bradford thirty odd years. Um, you know, fairly central in in Bradford, Saltaire. And I did a story which involved Bradford Asian community, as if you live in Bradford, it has to do. And the challenge went up again about cultural appropriation. You're putting yourselves in the footsteps of a Bradford Asian, a Muslim family, and you're talking about their life. And American Dirt was referenced. And, you know, the chaos that ensued around American Dirt, which was an American author, California, I forget her name. And she wrote about a Mexican family and the Mexican family's journey to America, crossing the border. Um, a great book. And I read it and I didn't see any sort of problem about that at all. There was a huge funeral. And I was advised to put this book about Bradford to one side. And then, of course, I started to read things like Liz Mystery and um, uh, Samia Mia, who did The Calm. And I realised, actually, 
they are the people who should be talking about Bradford, not me. <laughs> you know, they know it and they feel it. They they've lived it. You know, I have I haven't lived in that community, and yeah, I've been making a guess, making a stab, and so in a roundabout way, I was probably saved from myself. Even though I think I'm a you know, a, a, I mean, Yorkshire will never take me as one of their own because I wasn't born in Yorkshire, but um, I feel like <laughs> Yorkshireman. I, I feel like a Yorkshireman, but. Um, yeah, I would self-centre myself now from writing about uh, or putting myself putting myself in in that situation again because I think it wouldn't be the right thing to do. I don't have the knowledge, I don't have the sensitivity. I haven't been brought up with it. I think other people do it a lot better than I could possibly do it. So, so yeah, so that, but that's coming at it from a slightly different angle, I think. Mm. Mm. But I think it's a fair point as well because you know you do have to do a certain amount of research when you're a writer. And you don't want to give yourself too difficult a task and research something you don't have much experience of. Yeah, no, I don't. I don't mind that. I mean, it's uh, researched all sorts of wonderful things, and if I'm interested in it, yeah, you know, I mean, I did research, you know, how to make charts, you know, proper IT and what you know, how to, you know, what, 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 what it's made of and how you can do it, and you know, try to envisage the sort of the smell going into certain, you know, houses and the cookery and all this sort of thing. You know, it's, um, you know, that'd be. As I say, you know, I have friends from the community. I know the community. I walk the streets, etc. But um, it's the small things. And when you, you know, as I say, when you read Liz Mystery and people like that in particular, you know, you, you you pick up so much more. You know, it's a, it's a much fuller experience. And I don't think plain research could actually substitute having lived a life. You know, and that's that was that was my conclusion, whether it's right or wrong. Mm, fair enough. Um... I'm interested to know now that, you know, the books are out there and in terms of Malta, you know, it's been a bestseller and, and you've had some, some fantastic support from the agenda bookshops that, that are dotted around the island. Um, have the Has George and the book, have they been adopted now by the Maltese? Do you get that feeling that there's a, a buzz around? Yeah, it's true. There is actually, um, you know, I mean, people don't coop at my door. I don't get fated in the street or anything like that, you know, but <laughs> accosted in restaurants. But no, I, you know, the, we've, we've done giveaways and I've done book signings and sat in sort of um, shopping mall halls at my desk signing books. But yeah, there's, there's, there's quite quite a few people come around the house with their books asked if we could sign it. And um, people very, you know, my wife Janet is very active on Twitter. Um, and we get a lot of feedback from the Maltese on social media. Um, so yes, the the books sell well, and um, seemed it seems to have captured a bit of a feel. So we're talking, I think, as you know, about getting the books translated into Maltese. Um, I can't imagine that's going to be a huge market. I mean, Malta's got a population the size of Birmingham, and just looking at you know Maltese fiction shelves. There's nothing on them. <laughs> it's uh, lots of things about the lives of the saints and um, <laughs> monasteries we have known and things like that. And but there's not much of a tradition of Maltese culture and Maltese language culture. But uh, they seem, you know, it, it, it's of interest. There's nothing happening as yet, but uh, it's we're still talking and it's rattling around. So yeah, so that's, that would be kind of a bit of a turn up to see it in Maltese. That, that would that, that would t- tickle me. Yeah, I, I, yeah. I bet it would. I bet it would. Uh, Give them something else to read except for the popes and the saints. Well, and... yeah, but I mean, it's interesting <laughs> with Malta, isn't it? Because, you know, it's becoming very much a, an epicenter for filmmaking. And um, I noticed the other day I was I was browsing around and, and came across some images of Gladiator 2, which is being um, uh, created, creating a sort of amphitheatre 
down yeah. in, a, in yeah. an old fort, aren't they? Um, it, it it does feel as if as a as a as a location, but also as a uh, a community, they're getting used to being, you know, treated as as somewhere that these things happen. You know, the, 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 there is it's a fantastic location for for all of these amazing things. So I keep thinking in my head, it can't be that long before someone making Gladiator 2 picks up your book at the airport <laughs> to, <yeah>. and, <laughs> and options the rights. Well, I'll have, yeah, I'll, I'll pop down to the set and have a quick word. Um, <laughs> but, you know, you can, you can see the, uh, the Colosseum. I think it's about, it's built on three sides uh, from yeah. the, from the harbour, if you, if, if you go on the water. Um, and it's in Fort Ricasoli. I went to see Napoleon the other night. Yes. Film. But, uh, How is that? Uh, oh, appalling. But, the, it was filmed in Malta, and yeah. I didn't realise halfway through. I kept thinking, "I know that place. I know that place." <laughs> so, but the government give huge tax concessions, um, and like everything else in Malta, it's it, I I don't know how they do it, but um, the film industry is heavily subsidised. So, if you right. produce in Malta, you actually get a huge credit. I you get a backhander from the government, basically. So, all you know many many tens of thousands so it's uh but having said that you've got great sort of weather during the summer good shooting weather um you've got fantastic sort of historic infrastructure yeah um we did assassin's creed here and the first gladiator was filmed here and um i mean even turkish uh what was the thing that, um, um I was going to say Turkish Midnight Express, uh, but the yeah. Turkish jail was actually set in one of the Maltese ports. So it's got quite a long history and quite a long in- involvement. Um, the one, anyway, I'm not going to try and wrap my brains for them, but um, uh, th- 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 there was lots of stuff which has been set in Malta. So th- that's ongoing. I mean, insofar as literature is concerned, as I say, I, I, I'm, I'm not sure how much. You know, the, the Maltese language, I think, is like a spoken language, largely. Um, mm. It's it has, obviously, it can be written, it has been written, and you find people at the turn of the century who were made a great effort to put the, the words down into the form of a language, which is you know, an Arabic language, but written in um, Roman characters. Yes. So it's very, very odd. Lots of double X's and um, things oh, like yeah. that. Mm. There's silent cues everywhere. And it's, uh, I mean, Janet speaks five or six languages and she's tried to learn Maltese and she's basically given up, you know. There's 36 words in the alphabet to start with. So it makes life a little tricky. But, um, yeah. yeah. Well, I, I, I must admit, you know, so, I mean, we ought to sort of uh, break silence on this and say that I'm, I'm working on book one as a, an audio book at the moment and um it's not without its challenges i mean again the maltese accents um my first effort was <laughs> was risible really um i'm not sure my second effort isn't isn't equally uh off the mark because it is so different i mean it's 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 not what anyone would expect um and depending on what's side of society you're coming from as well but the one thing i've really found very challenging and and um i didn't want to sort of tie you down with you know how do you say this how do you say that place names are an absolute minefield (laughs) they don't you know they're not they don't sound anything like they'd look no that's that's true i think 
the problem with it is is that you know the English have been here since um, since the Polian times, since 70, 1701. So it's got a, you know a lot of there's a lot of English in in the language. You've got the Italians who are only hundred kilometers to the north in Sicily who've had an input into the language. The Arabs originally brought it across in the 14th century. So it, it's a real mix of different things. And then of course, time has you know worked its you know it it it's blend it's blended it all together to form quite a unique language. And as you say, the social classes, a lot of whom have been educated in Ampleforth and the Catholic colleges and heavily influenced by the presence of the military here for so many years with the, yes. the office, officer class and so on, mm. um, they have brought a sort of an, an RP to sort of certain elements of it. You yes. know, and uh, and I, I do, I, I appreciate your efforts, Adrian. And, uh, <laughs> you, have my, you, have, you have my support and my pity. So no. to ask you, you've taken on and I'm, I'm in awe of you. Well, thank you. I mean, I, I have this library now of YouTube clips of different people from Malta speaking from at the different levels. And as you say, with the RP thing, you know, it's an RP with just a hint, just a hint of, you know, that Mediterranean thing mm. creeping in. And so finding the points where you want to drop that in is, is for me, the hard bit. Um, but one of the tricks that I've, I've, I've used and was suggested was that if you speak with a smile, a fixed smile on your face, it, oh, it, it puts your mouth in the right <laughs> sort of context for getting right, your tongue okay. towards the front of your teeth. And as you pointed out to me that, you know, this and that would be this and that. You know, which then gives it an Irish. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. Uh, yeah, and there's, no, it's, also, it's, it's... and there's a Swedish um, sort of feel to some of it, where it goes up and down, up and down, like a, you know, in a sort of uh, like the chef. Well, a sine wave <laughs> kind of. Yeah, and ushti, no, it's not ushti bushti kind of <laughs> put the chicken in your pot kind of uh, <laughs> Swedish chef thing, but but there is an element of, of this trying to get that in there too so um yeah i, I don't luck. think i don't well quite i don't think i've ever experienced anything more complex than this and well if you could do this you could do anything surely uh yeah well you will at least you'll have a monopoly on the sort of maltese language um you yeah. are although it's all about you're... saints and popes though so. <laughs> true you're enough the man, you're the man, man to go to Right. Well, look, I mean, no, it's 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 been a pleasure to do so far, and um, you know, we will see. We'll, we'll, you know, I think it's going to be one of those things which is going to require retrospective refitting of certain things. But what I felt was at this point in the in in the production, it's important to just let's get to the end, and then we can <laughs> yeah. take a judgment of which bits need redoing. And because you know, just sitting there, one waiting for me to get it to click all the way through. Is actually counterproductive. Yeah, you know, it's almost having to do it uh, in the studio, best effort on the day, refine it. And I've gone back and done some of the voices again because they've evolved into something much closer to what I think it should be like. And okay. so hopefully, fingers crossed, we're getting there. But um, it's 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 certainly been a, a, a very pleasurable but very considerable intellectual and physical challenge yeah. in that well, sense. Good for, good for you. Good for you. Well done. Well, I need, I need, you know, I need the stretch. A bit like living with me then. Very much so. In, 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 indeed, anything involved in Hobeck and, and uh, <laughs> things like that. But look, it, it's it's really great to hear that there's a book six. I, we can't wait to, to, to see it and, uh, and, and, 
you know, fingers crossed, we'll all think, yeah, well, let's publish I, that I, too. I, I enjoyed it, and I actually I enjoyed writing it, but the more than anything else, and um, I I think it's better on the edge. Oh. Well, I thought five was the best one yet, yeah. anyways, as well. And you've had a lot of people say that, haven't they? Yeah, I mean, the reviews, the reviews yeah. have been stellar so far. Yeah, they have yeah, been good. Yeah, I've been very pleased. Yeah, yeah, and and rightly so. So, look, um, we we really appreciate you stepping in at the last minute and and delving back into the world of Jan- George Zamit, which has been tremendous fun. But it's time to <laughs> put a little. Um, it's time, it's time for your, your chicken out of the oven, isn't it? Well, no, uh, something. Well, it'll be, it won't be very cooked if I do. I'll put it in like <laughs> 20 minutes ago. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just keep it in there for a bit longer. Croissant? Croissant? Croissant. You know, the little chickens. Poussin. Poussin. That's it. It's not one of them. <laughs> no, it's not a poussin. Uh, gosh. Right. Okay, Rebecca, <laughs> let's, let's hit it. Rebecca's random question. So my questions tend to come from things that are going on in my life, right? And last night, we got snow. A good amount uh-huh. of snow. So my question, I've got it's sort of more than one question. The first question is, do you like snow? Are you on the yay snow or the oh my God? I I, I love snow. You love snow. So my, my yeah. question then is, what do you like to do in the snow and why? Well, I'm, a, I'm an ardent skier. So that's the first thing. Um, I love the skiing. Um, if I'm at home, um, in Bradford. Bradford is, I live in a very steeply incised valley. So in the garage, I have a complete set of different types of sledges going from the, the plastic disc to a big metallic thing, which my father had made for me when I must have been about 10 in the shipyards. It's so heavy as a child, I couldn't even lift it. But the thing, once it gets going, it moves. So I, I take my I take my hardware up onto the... Um, the uh, the hills and outside our house and anyone who wants to come with me grandchildren whatever we go sledging i love sledging <laughs> i want to come next time it snows and you're in bradford i'm gonna well you'd have okay, to drive well. there well, that, that sounds like one of those yeah those sledges that kneecaps people when they gather you know they're not like, it's, it's, yeah because you could definitely take a leg off with something that's that heavy a terrible <laughs> thing it's a uh, the ship the shipyards of course had um, one color of paint that everybody used to steal and this was bottle green so yeah. If you're, if you're ever in the northeast and you see a house painted bottle green, you know somebody used to work at Austin and Picker Skills. <laughs> yes, absolutely. So, see, I used to have a sledge. It wasn't quite as hefty as that by the sound of it, but it was a wooden one with metal um, runners, runners yeah. that mm-hmm. I, we got for Christmas, like a joint Christmas present once. And I can remember, like the joy of actually going down the hill on it. But I was always the last to get up the hill with this damn thing because it was so heavy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> So we used to use bin. We used to use our um, pee bags, like oh, really? you know, just plastic bags from Sainsbury's yeah. on the way home from school. I, I, you know, I have done my own bit of tobogganing in, in my time, but um, I'm 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 lazy. I don't like climbing back up again. So it's one oh. run for me, and then I'm going home. You don't like <laughs> well, snow at all. No, not really. My no. father, my fa- my father said he um, this was his sort of his hole in the road story. You know, they they used to use the coal shovel when they were young. So uh, <laughs> how we've how we've all moved on? Yeah, lived in shoebox. Yeah, and all exactly. That stuff. <laughs> but, but, but we're completely different when it snows. So I, I have great joy, and I get very excited. You couldn't sleep last night with the thought of, of snow. Like Hop us five or something ridiculous like that. I built yeah. a snowman today. I love it. I saw, Absolutely I love saw it. it. I saw it on your on your Facebook page. Very commendable. <laughs> very commendable. I'm great sure effort. it's going into the newsletter. And um, she called it Mr. Humph. And um, <laughs> 
she didn't deny it when she said, that looks rather like me. It does a bit like you. Yeah. But someone says, um, it looks like Oliver you Hardy. You didn't, <laughs> you didn't deny that it was uh, inspired by people in your life and a certain person. Yeah, because the hump. that's the face you have when it snows. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> it's true. It's the face I have most of the time, in fairness. Well, Tony, look, it's it's fabulous. The Last Bird of Paradise out now um, in paperback and, of course, in ebook. And uh, it is heading its way to the Maltese bookshops. It's, I'm not sure. If only we knew how long it takes to get well, there. Well, that's, from... that's always been a challenge. That's been one of the great sort of learning points, actually, for Hobeck, has, has been getting books into those multi We never get there but... eventually because we see the photo of you in the airport or you in the bookshop <laughs> pointing well, at I mean, your I'm, books. But... I, checked, I checked at the airport last night. They're still there. and not, They're not actually ranked in the bestsellers now, but they're on the shelf underneath. So... Oh, good. Uh, no, that's still... all... and, and that's they're, they're in the bestsellers best... bay. They're in the bestsellers bay. So well, uh, you know, and, and, and I'll take that. Yeah, exactly. And long may they be there. But it's been, uh, it's been a pleasure to be your publisher for these and also thank you. talking again today. So thank you so much for joining us. Excellent. Lovely to talk to you. He loves snow. Well, I'm do, outvoted. Why does he live in Malta then? Yeah, he's not <laughs> going to get much there. Um, yeah, I mean, it's been incendiarily hot uh, over in Malta this summer. Yeah. For sure. Across the Mediterranean, we, we all know. So, But... Um, Desperate to go and visit. It's so full of history. It's just my kind of town, I think, or place. Uh, just full of history and naval history too. So uh, well worth We visit. will. We'll yeah. go and visit at some point. So thank you to him. And our guest next week is... Natalie Chandler. Natalie Chandler, writer of psychological fiction. Yeah, I think so. Sort of psychological Thrillers. suspense. Yeah. yeah. So looking forward to speaking to Natalie. I booked this interview a while ago, so... Um... Yeah, yeah, fingers crossed, no, I no the, vocal problems. I, I joked with her at the time. I said, oh, you never know. There might be some Christmas decorations by then. But there won't be because we don't put our tree up until double figures in December at least. Okay, right. Well, we'll look forward to, to speaking to Natalie. Okay, we've um, we've covered a lot of the sort of uh, the Hobeck news. I mean, um, published a book last week. Yeah. I finished recording a, uh, one of the audiobooks, and now I'm going to concentrate on George Zamit uh, for – the foreseeable future, in terms of recording anyway. Uh, got a lot of editing to do. I'm very delighted to say that on personal news, my dad is finally out of hospital. He's been in and out of hospital for eight weeks post having a massive heart operation. And um, I was able to take him home and eventually, two nights later, say farewell and say, you know, you're well enough to you know cope on your own yeah and he's done really well since. So. No, it's, it's amazing really because, yeah, he was quite poorly at first when... Um... After the operation. Well, he's been in and out of different hospitals um, and uh, was in a really bad way about four weeks ago, it has to be said. Um, but uh, the combined efforts of Mac- Macclesfield General, in particular the Withenshaw Hospital in Manchester, done wonders. And um, he is well on the mend and should be in good shape for Christmas. And I've ordered a turkey and the pork belly, so I feel like I've had a very productive week. You've had a really busy week. I have. I've been, oh, lots of... Different places. I had to take um, number one son to Stoke Hospital. Don't go there unless you have to, if you have a car. <laughs> Parking was horrendous, absolutely horrendous. They are all hospitals are horrendous. Yeah, and it looks like a train station. So, yeah, I had that. Then ordering the turkey and the pork, of course, which was a delight, even though I go into the butchers and I say, I would like some Christmas fodder, please. Mm. And they say, what would you like? And I say, well, I'd like a turkey. <laughs> mm. And then they look at me blankly and say, well, how much turkey would you like? <laughs> and I, said, I don't know. It really freaks you and stresses you out. <laughs> it, it does a bit, yeah. So, we, well, the, the 
um, woman serving me was very, very helpful and patient and kind. So <laughs> oh, we got there in the end. Good, good. Yeah, Christmas is fast accelerating. And of course, one of the things we did this week was record the second of our specials for the for the Christmas period. And this one is uh, we have a trio of wonderful Hobeck authors discussing the challenges of writing police procedurals. Nice festive topic, yes. you think. So well, we did get the festive topics in, didn't we? So. We did. When we it was, it was a great conversation. So look forward to that. We've got uh, Harry Fisher, we've got Rachel Sargent, and Brian Price joining us for our police procedural special, and that is a companion piece to another of our Christmas specials, which is about humour in crime fiction. And uh, they've been a delight to do. Yeah, really, we're going to do more. We will. I mean, just brilliant, and it's so great to bring our Hobeck family closer together in, in doing these things and he- hearing people, you know, hearing our authors sharing their perspectives and following up their points. And, and just, I think, I think any author of who, uh, or any listener and reader of crime fiction will get a lot out of these two. Oh, absolutely. Specials. Yeah, we did. Yeah. Uh, we'll play you a little sneak preview in our show next week, which okay. will be episode 151. Uh, I shall edit some of that this week so that uh, that has been a pleasure as indeed it has been to bring you the Hopcast book show this week thank you so much for joining us my name is adrian hobart my name is rebecca collins and we haven't even mentioned uh doctor who this week oh and the isaac newton <laughs> controversy uh and as far as i'm concerned he wasn't and never has been an asian actor there we go right i'll leave it there i love mavity though yeah okay i love that idea for those who didn't watch doctor who's special number two for the 60th anniversary you won't have a clue what we're talking about but um for that we're sorry okay don't forget to go to our website Uh, we've got many websites actually but www.hobeck.net is our key one and uh, also uh, archpub.net if you wish to use our publishing services and in fact one of the things we did this week was meet with a potential client we did yes so a very exciting project but we can't say anything yet no no, no it's watch it, this space well hopefully yeah so very exciting and uh, it is such a pleasure to do this show too so don't forget to subscribe to the hopcast book show wherever you get your podcasts from and we're with you every monday Lucky to eternity. <laughs> to, to eternity? Yeah. I didn't sign up for that. Okay, fair enough. Well, you keep pushing me to do them. Let's uh, let's leave it there. And we wish you a wonderful and... Creative. God, you're milking that nowadays. Week. Bye-bye. You've been listening to the Hobcast from Hobeck Books with Adrian Hobart and Rebecca Collins. You can find the show notes at our website www.hobeck.net You can also use the exclusive Hobcast discount code for any of the products at our Hobeck online store. Just enter the code HOBCAST20 for a 20% discount. Don't forget to subscribe to the Hobcast and feel free to contact us with any feedback. Until next time, remember our motto Trad Values, Indie Spirit. Indie Spirit